There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. So we're going to be covering 20 verses. I'm not going to read them for the sake of time. But I do ask that you pray with me. Well, we do thank you for another day. We can serve you. Father, we pray that you would take your word today and by your Holy Spirit let it penetrate hearts. Let it do that work in us, Lord, that needs to be done. We all need help in different ways, and none of us have arrived. Reveal yourself to us today, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been betrayed? I guess each of us would probably answer that in the affirmative, although our degrees of betrayal would probably vary greatly. The thing with betrayal is the natural response is revenge. I read this week about a boy in Korea who was a houseboy for some American soldiers. Sometimes they thought it was funny to play harmless jokes on him. They would tease him and they would tie his shoestrings together and they would, they would lock him out of the house. And Eventually they realized that their practical jokes were not viewed as funny to the little boy and so they apologized. The boy said, that okay, I quit spitting in soup now. (laughs) This is why you want to be nice to the people at McDonald's. The sad thing is, betrayal is just a part of life. And whether it occurs at work, in a marriage, or in a friendship, it matters not. The pain is real. And if we allow it to, it can scar us for life. But it doesn't have to. We follow one who was a victim of the greatest betrayal in all of history. And yet the very night that Judas betrayed him, he still washed his feet. So being betrayed isn't really the question. The question is, how do we respond when that happens And do we allow that betrayal to then become the driving force behind our lives? Connie and I have a friend who who felt betrayed by her ex-husband many, many years ago. And almost every single conversation that we have somehow refers back to that time of her perceived betrayal. I don't know about you. But I don't want any one human being to have that kind of control over my life. So how do we respond when those that we help the most spit in our face the hardest? Well, David will give us a good example this morning. Look at verse 9 with me. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. 
Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the house of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Now David, it seems, had various ways in which he could receive God's communication to him. Earlier, if you remember, the prophet Gad had instructed him to move from the stronghold. David, it seems, could also get answers directly from God, as he did about Keilah. And now the surviving priest has arrived with the ephod. The important thing for us to notice is that Saul's dreadful atrocity toward the priest of Nob had the unintended consequences of putting yet another means of consulting the Lord into the hands of David. It reminds me of Joseph, who when his brother sold him into slavery, said, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Isaiah 54:17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is for me, says the Lord. That means that we are all living examples of Romans 8.28, where we are told that all things work together for our good, which I'll touch on later. In verse 9, David tells Abiathar to bring the ephod to him. Now, this seems to have been the ephod that had belonged to the high priest Abiathar's murdered father, Ahimelech. Now, all priests wore an ephod called a linen ephod, but the high priest's ephod was a more elaborate affair. Attached to his ephod was a breastpiece which contained the urim and the thummim. You're thinking the whom and the wadum? The words literally, literally mean light and perfection. Somehow, the Lord would cause something to happen to them that would give you a yes or no answer. According to the famous historian Josephus, one of the two stones would shine brightly. In a vivid, unnatural way, it could be clearly seen. Now, we are unsure of how it worked, but the important thing is, is that it did work. And wouldn't that be a handy thing to have today? Lord, should I buy this car or that car? Should I marry this chick or that chick? I'm not sure chick is a politically correct term. Of course, I'm not sure that anything's politically correct anymore. Okay, got me off track again. Wait a minute. <laughs> but since we don't have a Urim and a Thum, have we no means of inquiry from the Lord? Well, yes, we have. How can we get the clear word that David got? Can we know that there is light from heaven for our next step? In the circumstances and the confusion of life and the pressure of adversity, can we know clearly Can we receive a confident word of direction from God? Where can you go when you're in a jam? Well, if you are a believer, you have the guiding of the great high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. He will send the light of heaven into the soul of the person who longs to know his will. And he will give it unmistakably For in him, by the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit, each of us has a personal Urim and Thummim. To the child of God is the word from heaven, this is the way, walk in it, Isaiah 40 or 30, 21. 
Well, David inquires of the Lord and is told that, yes, the people of Keilah will hand you over to Saul. Now, since David had rescued that city from the Philistines, you would have expected the citizens to be grateful and to protect David. But such is not the case. The Lord wanted David to get out of the city because the people were prepared to to turn him over to King Saul. And no doubt, in fairness, the people of Keilah were afraid that if they didn't cooperate with Saul, he would massacre them as he had just did with the people of Nob. I think it's interesting that no blame is laid by David, the Lord, or the writer concerning the people of Keilah. We are merely left with the impression that the fear of Saul's fury against anyone who helped David was greater than whatever gratitude that they felt to the one who had delivered them from the Philistines. And I suggest the reason there is no mention in our text of David being angry, disappointed in, or upset with the people of Keilah is because in the verses preceding this story, David had dropped the ball himself when he lied to Ahimelech. It's easy for us to forget about all the people that we have betrayed. We tend to forget about all the people in the past that we've let down. I call this spiritual Alzheimer's. That is the condition of conveniently forgetting our own failings. David recalled how pained he was because of the tragedy at Nob, and he didn't want yet another city to be wiped out because of him. I wish I could tell you that the men of Keilah were an anomaly and that no one will ever betray you. I wish I could promise you that the people you help will be appreciative all your days. But that would just be untrue. The reality is it's very often the people you care about the most who will let you down the greatest. I can think of no better example than the Lord Jesus himself. It's astonishing to me the number of times that Christ's own disciples were always vying for the top position in the kingdom about who was greatest among them. Let me just pick out one example. This is Matthew 20:17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, And they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and on your left hand. This is an amazing moment. Jesus tells his disciples he is on his way to die. Matthew then writes, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came. In other words, immediately after Jesus said he was to be betrayed and then mocked and then flogged and then crucified, she says, Before that happens, can I get in a quick request? Basically, she's saying, Jesus, can you do me a favor? You know my boys here, Jimmy and Johnny. Before you're humiliated and martyred in the ultimate act of self-sacrificial love, can I get my boys a promotion? 
can I get them an upgrade? I know you have 12 disciples and all, but could you make sure my boys are disciple number one and disciple number two? It's hard to believe, isn't it? If you've ever been betrayed or let down, you can find a sympathetic ear in the person of Christ. Verse 13, please. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the stronghold and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek him or seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Did you notice that in verse 13, David now has 600 men following him. The 400 who had joined him at the cave of Adullam had already grown by 50%. Slowly but surely, God is building David's kingdom. And yet we are told that Saul is still relentless in his crazed pursuit to kill David. But finally, there is a little ray of sunshine in David's life. David's beloved friend Jonathan risked his life to visit David in the wilderness, and as the NIV translates it, helped him find strength in God. Now this will be their last recorded meeting. Jonathan won't be mentioned again until 1 Samuel chapter 31, where we are told that he dies on the battlefield. Now, Jonathan had no idea he would be slain before David would become the king, because he talked to David about their future co-regency and renewed with him the covenant that they had earlier made. Now, I think it's interesting that verse 16 does not say that Jonathan came all the way to Horish to strengthen David's self-confidence. He didn't. It says he arose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. That is the difference between Christian camaraderie and all other support groups and therapy groups and self-help groups. This is the whole point of Christian solidarity. It's to point each other to Christ and not to men for our help and our strength. Let me ask you, when you see your friends or family getting ground down by life, are you someone who builds them up in God, or do you speak words that tear at the fabric of the relationship with the Lord? Do you tell them that they should fight back or seek peace? Do you encourage them to take control or to yield control to the Lord? Now, Jonathan doesn't wring his hands in anxiety, but strengthens David's hands in God. We all need people who will strengthen our hands in God. You need people who will say to you, trust in the Lord. Put away your sorrow. Put away your fear. Why? Because the Lord is present to help. And the Lord will see you through. But we instead often look for sympathy. At least I do. But the Lord knows that that's not what I need Ultimately, Well, what I need is for someone to come my way and strengthen my hand in God. That is what we all need. Jonathan was that kind of man. 
he finds David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, the root word of Ziph means the refining place. What a great place for David to go. David is going to a place where he can be refined. Just like a smelter would do with gold or with silver. He would heat it up until all the dross and the impurities would be burned away because of the heat. And how would the smelter know that the gold or silver was finally pure? He would know when he could look at it and see the reflection of his own face. And just like that, the Lord would say to us, I'm going to allow the heat to be turned up from time to time to burn out all the impurities in your life so that my face may be reflected in your life. This is Malachi 3.3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. The thing is, not everything that needs to be removed in our lives and from our lives are technically bad, sinful, or evil things. The Apostle Paul said that all things were permissible to him, but not all things were profitable. Consider a rock with a vein of silver running through it, for instance. Now, there's nothing wrong with the rock, but for the silver to be profitable, the perfectly good rock must go. So, too, with us. Sometimes God will remove from our lives the neutral things in order to give us the better things. So, we say that we want to be like Jesus. We pray, God, conform me to the image of Christ. We all love Romans 8.28, which reads, We know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called, and here's the key thing, according to his purpose. The problem is, have we ever paused to determine exactly what his purpose is? Now, the next verse tells us, and it's often not read with Romans 8.28. This is Romans 8.29. The purpose is, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We said we wanted to be conformed to be like Christ. Well, how does that happen? Verse 28 says that God takes all things and works them together for our good for this to happen. That's happy things and sad things. And disappointing things. All things. The tricky thing is we often don't know what all that will entail, which can be both exciting and completely terrifying. Welcome to the Christian life. Look at verse 17. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible says these words, do not fear, or do not be afraid? These are always spoken in terrifying circumstances when fear is the natural and the reasonable thing to do. The words, when we hear them in the Bible, are never an empty attempt at comfort but an expression of reality that is more real and more powerful 
in whatever terrifying circumstances we're going through. So how could it be possible for David, seeing as Saul was out to seek his life, to have no fear? I think it's because David has spent his entire life walking through whatever door that God had opened for him. This is Revelations 3.7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. One author that I read wrote these words. He says, A door is one of the richest images in literature. It can mean safety, as in my door is chained and locked. It can mean hiddenness, like no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. It can mean rejection. She shut the door in my face. It can even mean rest, like those times a young mother's favorite room is the bathroom, where she can close the door and be alone for a minute. All those things are true, but in this passage, a door means none of those things. Rather, it's an open door of boundless opportunities, of unlimited chances to do something worthwhile. It could be a grand opening into new and unknown adventures. It could be a door that makes our lives count for something in eternity. And shouldn't that be the goal of every Christian? Now, God said to the church in Philadelphia, I know your strength is small. Now, people in that church may not have been hugely flattered when they read that line. But what a gift to know that open doors are not reserved for the specially talented or the extraordinarily strong. God can open a door for anyone. But open doors don't always mean a conflict-free zone. Paul wrote to the people in Corinth that a wide door for effective work has been opened for me. Then he adds, and there are many adversaries. Now please note that this is not just any door. This is a wide open door. You could drive a truck through it. But Paul took the presence of resistance and opposition as a confirmation that this was the door that God had opened for him. And an open door is not also a picture of something good always. It involves a good that we may not fully know, but it doesn't offer a complete view of what the future is. An open door often means an opportunity or a mystery or a possibility, but not a guarantee. God doesn't say, I've set before you a hammock. He doesn't say, I've set before you a detailed set of instructions about exactly what you should do and exactly what will happen as a result of doing that. An open door does not mean that all will be pleasant and smooth on the other side. I don't either. She can't answer it and I can't answer it. Cut your phones off, would you? I hope I can answer that properly. Let's see. <clears throat> I read about a pastor 
who got a letter from the father of an eight-year-old daughter who had been diagnosed with a disease that was life-threatening and debilitating. He wrote, Every day I pray for her healing. Every day I pray to understand. Every day I ask God, God, would you make me sick instead of my little girl? Let me suffer. He writes, I'm so mad at God. I'm trying to hang on, but I'm so mad. Why is heaven silent on the one prayer that I most need answered? I bet you've been there or someplace like that, or you will be sometime. I cannot point you to an explanation that has all the answers because nobody has all the answers. I can only point you to a person. I can only tell you that at the heart of the gospel is an unanswered prayer and a closed door. Jesus, kneeling in the garden, prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup, this suffering, this death, may this be taken from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That is the most desperate prayer ever prayed from the most discerning spirit that ever lived, from the purest heart that ever beat, for deliverance from the most unjust suffering that has ever been known. And all it got was silence. The cup was not taken from him. The request was denied. The door remained closed. Just a few quick comments on the last ten verses, and we'll call it a day. Verse 19, Then Ziphite came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakaliah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul and to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate and see the place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. Incredible. Things are not getting any easier for David. Now the Ziphites are ratting him out. Now David wrote Psalm 54 on this very occasion, and then it prayed for salvation and vindication from the Lord. Listen to the psalm. The heading says, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. When the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your, in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen his desire upon my enemies. David gives us a great example of when life is unfair and all seems to be stacked against us. What does he do? He takes the situation to God and allows the Lord to deal with the situation. 
the older I get, the more I realize how ill-equipped I am to fix things in my own strength. I am learning to trust the Lord and do those things that I think that He wants me to do instead of freaking out and flying off of the handle. Now, verse 21 is astounding to me. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. What sticks out more than anything is once again Saul plays the God card. The Lord bless you. He took it upon himself to use God's name to bless those who see life his way. His arrogance is stunning. What noise. Now what's scary about this is Saul has become so convinced that evil is good, he can now invoke God's blessing on evil things. And having other people support him was like pouring gas on a fire. Now I call that frothy God talk. Frothy God talk occurs when people who have no relationship with God invoke his name just to look spiritual to other people. I remember a Thanksgiving dinner many years ago in another church when I was in the corner softly playing the guitar while the people ate. And a guy came off of the street and with alcohol all over his breath told me that he wanted me to play the song, Fill My Cup, Lord, so he could sing it for everybody. I thought, buddy, it smells like your cup's been filled too many times already. But I kept that to myself. But what was he doing? He was using frothy God talk to try to make himself look more spiritual. Anyway, that's just a chapter in my new book, This Church is Driving Me Crazy. (laughs) Available at fine bookstores everywhere. Verse 23. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now verses 23 through 26 are just an account of the chase. Then we come to verse 27, which begins with the words, But. This is the point where God steps in. But God. I love those two words together. But God. Did you know that there is a website devoted to this? It's called BigButtsOfTheBible.com. You can't make that up. In closing, you're probably all checking that on your phone right now. I'm not kidding you. It's there. So let me close. Uh, Verse 28 says, They called that place the Rock of Escape. Now, David had no place to go. He was hemmed in and surrounded by the enemy. 
but there was a rock of protection between him and Saul. Likewise, our rock, the rock of ages, Jesus Christ, has never once let me down, never once dropped the ball. So many times I've thought, I just can't figure this out. I don't know how this is going to work. But the Lord always has come through for me. And he will always come through for you also. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. So we see without striking a blow or shooting an arrow or hurling a spear, David was delivered. And sometimes when we try to take things into our own hands, we only make matters worse. God would say, let the rock be your protection. Watch and see what I will do as you trust in me. And what he did for David, he will do for us also. Father, it's so easy to want to take things into my own hands. Try to work out problems and situations in my own strength using my own thinking. But Lord, I pray that we would all allow you to take over, that we would walk in your spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, that we would do things that would bring pleasure to you, Lord, because in the long run, when we do things your way, it's always the best way. Make that true for us, Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.